0: experience can be one of the most effective teachers, but it can also be one of the most leading things in the world. For for instance, you might expect a certain number of songs before you come up to preach, and then you walk up, but your experience has misled you, um, as we saw today. But I think we can observe this phenomenon of experience being one of the most leading, most misleading things through what's called classical conditioning. So in psychological terms here, you can do all sorts of fun experiments this way, but I don't know if you've ever had an experience where maybe you went out to eat somewhere like Taco Bell, and you had a delicious crunch wrap supreme. But then on the way home, your stomach started to churn, and the rest of the evening, you were upset with your stomach, and your stomach was upset with you, and and you determined that Taco Bell food makes you sick. So you logically reasoned out, based on your experience, I had a Crunchwrap Supreme, and then I got sick. Therefore, Taco Bell makes me sick. And, and then from that point on, there's this weird thing that happens in your body, in your brain, that when you get a whiff of Taco Bell, you start to feel sick. That, that's a real thing. And, and in fact, you are just determined that you should never go near a Taco Bell because it's going to make you throw up. Well... In reality, probably what happened was you ate Taco Bell and there's a seasonal flu that's going around and you got a 24-hour bug from something totally different and that's what made you sick. And in fact, it, Taco Bell had nothing to do with it. That, that is a way that our experience can mislead us. And in fact, most of the time, we can never work backwards to unravel what's actually the case because based on other realities, Taco Bell has had food poisoning that that makes people sick. So we know that could be the case. My point is that we can't always trust our experiences. And in fact, our experiences often lead us to believe something that is completely untrue. Well, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, I think that he is trying to correct an experience of salvation that has led them to conceive of salvation in, in a way that's totally untrue. This is particularly the case as he's writing to a church comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And especially as he gets later into sections where he talks about the way that both Jew and Gentile are saved, even though it goes against the common ingrained experience of any of the Jews in in the church, they, they need to catch on to the reality that their experience is not to be their guide. Instead, this apostolic word is to be their guide on how salvation actually happens. I think, though, that this is instructive for us as well because we can talk about our experience of salvation or relate to God's saving work in ways that might match our experience but are totally untrue. And, and we might even have something of a visceral bodily reaction to the way that the, the gospel is presented and the way that the Bible talks about our salvation that we need to work to overcome, even when it's really hard. So we get to sections where we talk and when we hear about our salvation in terms of God the Father making us his children. And, and our only experience as children has been experiences of abuse. And our, our only connections to fathers have been to fathers who were awful towards us. And, and so we start to allow that to color the way we view and experience our salvation. And, and we need to hear this word from Paul on how God is a different kind of father who makes us a different kind of children. And and when we get deeper into this, we start to get into ideas of election and predestination. And you may only have heard about these ideas in abrasive sort of ways. But when we come to this text of scripture, Paul wants to to bring us to experience our salvation in a new way that might not correlate to our, our current experience of these ideas. And so as we come to this text... I, I would just ask whether your experiences of fatherhood and as a child or your engagement with people talking about election and predestination, if those things have all been negative, please try to take a moment to look at that as a person who says, I can't eat Taco Bell again because it always makes me sick. It, your, your experience might not be true to reality though so your experience is a real experience. So I want to say it's still a real experience, but there is a call to recalibrate just as much as there was a call for the Jews in this church to recalibrate their understanding of God's redemptive plan to equally include Gentiles as part of that plan from eternity past. So what I want to do this morning is to take a look at Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. And in the first section of the sermon, I want to investigate the language of God choosing and predestining us. And then in the second half, I want to reflect on what it means for God to choose us and what those effects actually are. So please turn, if you haven't, to Ephesians 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Let me just pause here and say that this is just Paul's general way of writing to church. And and he highlights their identity as saints, but he recognizes you're also living in a particular place at a particular time. So you are saints, but you're in Ephesus. So you belong to the city of God, but you're operating in the city of man. And for that reason, you need God's grace and peace. So grace to you and peace from God, our father in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he begins the, the meat of the letter. Blessed is God, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So even as we look at this section, it starts with praise for God and it ends with praise for God, but it gets into two really strong statements about God choosing a people for himself. And I want to, in this first section, as I mentioned, talk about the nature of God's choice. And as we look at This text in verse 4, it just simply says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to reiterate in verse 5 that God predestined us. Now, it's kind of hard to see in English, but there's really only one main verb here. And that's of God's choosing. And then it's further qualified or colored in with this language of God predestining us. But I want to begin by reflecting on this idea that God chose us. So Paul declares in verse 4 that God chose us in Christ. And this language of choosing is really quite common throughout the Old Testament. So if you read the Old Testament over and over again, you find God choosing individuals and choosing a group of people. This is the case from the very first time this word appears, this exact word that appears in the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy 17, where, where God says that he is going to choose a king. So God's choosing is not something new to the New Testament. It's not a, a totally new idea that comes in with the new covenant. Instead, it's something that's present throughout the entire Bible. Most commonly, when God is the subject doing the choosing, the object is not necessarily one individual, but a group of people. This is especially true as we read the Pentateuch and God chooses Israel as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people set apart for his own name. God is the subject who chooses. Israel is the object who is chosen. So there's a corporate nature of this choosing. And this comes to the fore, particularly in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. And I'll just read this for you. Moses explains to Israel that they are, as they're preparing to enter into the land, that they've been chosen by God. He says, you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I I want to suggest that what Paul talks about in choosing a people and predestining them is drawn directly from this text of scripture and texts like it. I think Paul is trying to say the choosing of God's people, the church, is parallel with the choosing of God's people, Israel. And in fact, it's not just parallel, but it's a heightening of that choosing, but it's in continuity with it. So let me point out some parallels between this in the text that we read. God chose Israel to be God's own possession. And as a result of his choosing the church, they receive an inheritance. And in fact, they're talked about as God's inheritance. That that goes on in chapter one of Ephesians. God chose Israel because he had set his heart on them. He chose the church out of the good pleasure of his will, which is just to say his heart delighted in it. His heart desired them. God chose Israel as an act of love. And depending on the translation you're looking at, in Ephesians 1.5, it will say, in love, he predestined us. God chose Israel and that choosing brought about their redemption from Egypt. God choosing the church brings about their redemption through the blood of Christ. We see that Ephesians 1.7. God chose Israel with the intent of creating a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. God chose the church that she might be holy and blameless. And in fact, Christ works to present her without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. That's what he says in Ephesians 5. When God chose Israel... He also chose, using that same language, specific places where his presence would dwell with them and where they could worship. Well, in Ephesians, we find that God chose a people who are built up as a dwelling place for God. So whatever we say about predestination and election and choosing, I think we need to ground it in connection to God's choosing of Israel. So I'm not denying The systematic theology treatment of election that talks about the choosing of God's people as individuals. Where we say that God predestined a certain individual from before the foundation of the earth to make them a Christian. I'm not denying that, but I want to suggest that Paul is trying to lean into the corporate election. That is the group election of Christians in continuity with the group election of Israel. Why is this important, you might ask? It's it's important because we need to hear this letter as the church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches heard this letter. There's a reason Paul goes on in the rest of the letter to talk about the new humanity that's being created out of the old humanity, Jews, and the non-humanity, Gentiles, who come together as one new man. So if, if you are a Jew who is troubled, that Gentiles are being treated on equal footing and talked about is receiving all of the promises of the Messiah. If you're troubled by that, how do you think this text is going to hit you? in, In the second temple literature... And whenever I talk about second temple literature, I'm talking about Jewish writings that span from 586 BC all the way to 70 AD. So it's just a common religious writing of Jews post-exile until the destruction of the temple. It's very common in the second temple literature for Jews to talk about themselves as being chosen by God before the creation of the world. That, that's, and that's the language of the Old Testament as well. Well, if you are a Jew who is used to talking about yourself that way, and you read a letter from Paul saying the whole church has been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, that is going to say something, and that is this, that Gentiles are not an afterthought in the redemptive plan of God. That, that Gentiles are not an imposition on you as God's people. This challenges us when we look at the whole, what the whole message of the Bible means. And it helps us when we start to get into debates about the relationship between Israel and the church. And very often I hear the analogy that all of God's promises to Israel were made only to Israel, and they were the only ones intended to participate in it. But in Christ, uh, the Gentiles were sort of added on to it, tacked on, and, and they get to share in it. Um, and, and that's about it. And the analogy is given that if you have a child, like, say, your daughter, you promised, hey, we're going to, I'm going to take you out for ice cream when I pick you up from school. And she's hanging out with her friends waiting for you to pick her up. And um, then you say, you know what? Why, your friends can come to you. They, they can have it. I didn't think about them at all in this, but they can share in the ice cream as well. That, that's sometimes the analogy that's given. And I think that's an analogy that the Jewish church at the formation of the church would have liked. The Gentiles are an add-on. They, they're not truly the people of God as we are. But by starting here, with this declaration that God chose us, Jew and Gentile, before the foundation of the world, we start to see that God did not haphazardly lead us to follow Christ and become a church of Jew and Gentile. It it wasn't an afterthought. It's been part of the plan from the very beginning. While we might not think that's a big deal, it is. Most of us would fall into this category of Gentile. Without this, without God's redemptive plan, you and I would be part of the nations at war against God. We would be those in Psalm 1 who walk their own way, whose end is destruction. We would be the kings who rage against God and try to cast off his chains. But because God from eternity past has declared that both Jew and Gentile will be united into one humanity, you and I are part of that royal priesthood, that kingdom of priests who now are called to be holy and blameless before God. Paul adds then this language of predestination in verse 5. Now, unlike this language for choosing that's just really common in the Old Testament, this language of predestination doesn't occur once in the Old Testament, and it only occurs by my count, which might be wrong, but by my count, only five times in the New Testament. This is sort of a a hard word to know what it means because the the fewer occurrences, the, the less data we have to talk about what it means. But at a bare minimum, I think that we can say that to be predestined relates to a predetermination or or a predestiny. And, And in this way, as we look at the redemptive story, we can say that God has predetermined the destiny of his people. That is to say, he knows the end of the story and he's inviting people into that end of that story. He's predetermined what his choosing is going to do. So choosing and predestination are synonymous, but I think the predestination, you know, facet of it is saying that when God chose us, he didn't choose us without a plan for us. But in his choosing, he had an end goal in mind. In that way, we shouldn't envision God is something like a cold, cold, Hearted, shadowy, mysterious figure who is writing the destiny of individuals in a way that's capricious or evil or something like that. In his choosing, he did it with a good plan in mind, with a good predetermined end of that choosing. We'll get into this more down the road, but we need to understand. That when we are told that God chose us before the foundation of the world and that he predestined us to a certain end, if that hits us, is, is unacceptable. That it's unfair to God for God to do this, or it's not right for God to do this. I, I think we're helped first by connecting the New Testament language of choosing to the Old Testament language of choosing. While we certainly might have some troubles as we read about Israel being chosen out from all the other nations, it at least gives us a framework of God's choosing where it's not something new on the scene that has no precedent. And if we steep ourselves in the Old Testament, we see that even where God chose Israel from the other nations, there were always pathways for people from the other nations to tie into that choosing. If we can hear God's choosing in that way, we shouldn't have a visceral response to it. And while it is probably true that every one of us has run into what would be labeled a cage stage Calvinist who who sort of is angry in their happiness about God choosing people, we shouldn't let that color the way we hear choosing. Instead, we should hear it in light of the Old Testament language of choosing. But second, as we consider this language of choosing, we we come to understand that if Israel never would have chosen God and there was nothing about Israel that would make God choose them, the same is probably true of us. And so instead of reacting allergically to the idea that God from before the foundation of the world chose a people for himself, we should respond in praise because a people by themselves would never choose God. They would never want God. Left to our own ends, if we we have a realistic view of our sinfulness and of humanity, people don't want God. They want to dethrone God. So the mystery is not that God chose a people for his name and didn't choose everybody for his name. The mystery is that he chose anyone for his name. And, And the mystery to me is that when he made a new humanity, he did it with already created people. He didn't wipe out the human population and and form another man from the dust of the ground. That's the mystery. The the mystery is that he takes already existing people and makes makes a new humanity from them. As we consider this Language of God's choosing. We then need to move on to consider the basis of God's choice, or why does God choose the way he does, and how can his choice have any actual effect? Paul does this by framing God's predestining choice in terms of Jesus Christ and God's own will. So, first, Jesus Christ. Paul connects God's choosing to the blessings in heavens in Christ. So look at verse two, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus, for he chose us in him. So whatever it might mean to be blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavens, that can't be disconnected from God's choosing. And and I think there's more to the spiritual blessings in heaven than being chosen by God, but there's nothing less than that. And that's what brings us into the heavenly realms, such that we can say that our lives are hid with Christ in God in the heavenlies. So Jesus and his blessing is connected to this, but it also seems to me that God's choosing of us is only effective because of the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he, he comments that we were predestined to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. The beloved one is Jesus. So our choosing is a gracious, glorious thing because of Jesus, because we've been lavished with grace in the beloved one. Now he'll later on, and we'll examine this next week, point out that it's through the blood of Christ that this works. So God choosing a people for himself only actually comes to fruition. It only is born out because Jesus died for us to make a new humanity. And, and it only comes to fruition because Jesus is that true Adam. So, so where a new humanity is needed, Jesus is that humanity. And we are talked about in terms of his body. So when God chooses us, we're chosen and connected with the new humanity that's in Jesus Christ. I think, though, the thing that troubles most people when they hear about the election of God and the choosing of God for for himself, the objection is raised, does that violate human freedom? I I think that's a fine objection to have. I, I don't think that's a wrong objection, and there are many ways that we could talk about it, but I I think, though, as much as we need to talk about it, when we arrive at a text that talks about God's choosing and doesn't care to comment on man's choosing, we don't need to be distracted by man's choosing. There are plenty of other texts that talk about man choosing God. And in those texts, I think we need to lean into the reality that we face a choice of accepting or rejecting God, and we must make that choice. But here... Interestingly, the emphasis is on God's will and human will is not mentioned once. In fact, when he says that God chose and predestined us, he did it according to the good pleasure of his will. And here we need to talk about the free will of God, where God is free to do what he wants and he does it with joy and gladness. And for us to become distracted by talking about human will here, I think it's to miss the point. The point is that there is no other thing that Paul can point to as to why God would choose a people for himself. There's nothing except that God wanted to. It brought him pleasure and glory and it's good. So, whatever we might say about God's choosing, we just have to say there's nothing else that we can identify that would make God want us. Other than that, he wants to. And that's a mystery we should be happy with. And that should result in praising God's glorious grace. So, This is why we need Bible classes that talk about soteriology and election and and get into all of the nitty gritty of this. But whenever we talk about election and predestination and God's choice of us, we can say nothing other than, however it works, whatever that matrix of God's predestining work and my responsibility, whatever that looks like, I just know there's nothing in the world and nothing in me that would make God choose me or choose to create this thing called the church to create a people for himself. Other than that, he wanted to do it for that. We can only rejoice. Okay. So I said that I wanted to talk a bit about the language of God's choosing. And now I want to talk about what that means for us. What What's the result of this choosing and how should it impact us in our daily lives? Well, to recall again the common discussions about election and predestination and and God's choosing of us in systematic categories, we generally speak in shorthand and we just say something like, God predestined us for salvation. And, And that's not wrong, but it's not quite particular enough either. And I think as we start to get into the particularization of these things, the the better this doctrine of election helps us move forward in our Christian life and better understand who we actually are. Okay, so there are two things, two results or two purposes, however you want to say it, that are in view when God chose us and predestined us. The first is that God predestined us for adoption as sons, and then second, that God chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, Paul puts these in a way that I think made sense to him. I'm going to reverse them because that makes sense to me. Okay, so we need to talk first about our predestination for adoption as sons, and then follow that up with our choosing to be holy and blameless in love before him. So verse five, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Well, there are, I think, two modern day reactions to this idea of being adopted as sons. First, the question is, why are the daughters left out? And in fact, sometimes we rephrase this to say that we'd be, we've been predestination, predestined for adoption as sons and daughters. And, and that's not bad either, but I think it's, it's not quite right either because it's missing the background to this text. So, so that's one question that we might have. Why, why just adoption as sons? And then second, I think there's a reading of this text where we think of adoption only in our modern categories of adoption, whether that's of a pet or as a, of a baby, right? So if someone says, our family is going to adopt, well, what comes to mind? Well, what comes to mind is like a newly born baby or a two-year-old or, or maybe even an embryo adoption. And, and so it's this adoption that in, in, I think, where people are saying, man, I, I would like to have a child that I can adopt of a different ethnicity. Or, or even in these embryo adoptions, you can look through the charts and you see the parents and you look at the genetic code, you know what you're getting in part. And, and in one way, maybe that's used in a self-serving way. In another way, it's, some, it's used to really serve others. You know, I, I want to adopt a child that was, that, that was born with a, an addiction to drugs because of its situation in life, and, and there's a mercy there. But the adoption that comes to our mind is this modern form of adopting an infant, I think, primarily. Well, in, in the Roman background, that just wasn't the case. Infants weren't adopted. And and, um, even in the Old Testament, I can't think of a single Old Testament example of adoption. And so when we're trying to figure out how would people have heard this metaphor, we, we need to think in terms of the historical background of the Roman Empire. Well, in ancient Rome, adoption was very, very common, but it was the adoption of grown adult men. It was not the adoption of females generally, nor was it the adoption of infants. It was the adoption of grown men. And this was really common because the function of adoption was to carry on a family line um, and and to secure a family heritage. And so you would never adopt a child because you don't know if that child is going to grow up to be worthy of your family name and worthy of carrying on your family line. And what's interesting to me is that there are recorded instances where there are adoptions even when there's a genetic son, but that son is deemed unworthy. And so someone else is adopted to carry on the family line instead. And, and so you would carefully evaluate this individual and, and then they would be adopted through this odd process, especially if the genetic father of that guy was still alive. There, there was this thing where you would take him as like a servant three times in a row and then on the third time you officially adopt him. And, and the genetic father loses all rights and privileges as the father. And the adoptive Father now is the genuine father, and this guy is now the true heir. He, He carries on the family line. So when we hear that God predestined us for adoption as sons, we need to hear it with that background. So it explains that line as sons. It's not being discriminatory against women or something like that. It's just saying he adopts us in a way that we become his genuine heirs. We we become siblings to Jesus Christ. So your adoption as a son, it is true, ladies, that you're a daughter of the king, but you're adopted as a son. You participate in all of the benefits of adoption that would be afforded to this, this Roman man who was adopted as a son. But I think it's also instructive that Paul says that we were predestined for this, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. So, so where a Roman guy looking to adopt somebody would wait till this person has grown up and has shown himself to be a particular kind of person, God chose a people before himself before they ever existed, before there was any chance for them to prove themselves, before there was any opportunity to prove their merit or worth. God chose them. He chose you. He chose us. So it's interesting to me, this messes with our systematic categories a little bit. In this instance, not in other instances, but in this instance, predestination emphasizes a lack of knowledge of something or a lack of proof of something. So it's not as if God looks down the corridor of times and and knows what we're going to turn into. And then he chooses us. He chooses us before there's any illustration of who we will become. Now, that's not commenting on the limited knowledge of God or something. It's just a, a metaphor to say that God didn't wait for you to prove yourself as a worthy heir. He, he predetermined for that to happen. In response to that picture, I think we need to just clearly say that God has the credit for your identity as a son or daughter of God. You have no, you have no claim on that. Paul will make that really clear in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but this picture says it all. You have no claim on it. And if that's true for you, that's true for anyone else who is invited into the gospel of God. So there's not a single person who needs to show themselves worthy to be adopted by God. And I, I think we would all affirm that. But I think there's also an inclination in each of us when we start sharing the gospel to think for this person to really become a Christian, for them to really become a child of God, they need to change all of these things about themselves first so that then they can really be a, a child of God and really belong to God's family member. Well, well that's reversing the operations as we'll come to see You're you're predestined and chosen as a son or daughter, not because of anything you have to offer. And we need to remember that as we share the gospel with people we encounter. Finally, on a really practical level, I think that this imagery of adoption is something that Christians historically have carried on in that we as a church would be well, we, we would do well to consider carrying it on too. I think that it is good and right for families in churches to pursue adoption. I know that adoption is hard and expensive, more expensive than it needs to be, but I think it's right for families to pray and ask God whether or not they should pursue adopting a child who has no family as a picture of the adoption that we have in God. And and as, Lord willing, families in our church do that, if if you don't feel that this is my calling, there is a way that you can participate in that through encouraging and financial help and all sorts of other things. I think that we need to be a church that happily and joyfully works towards bringing children without fathers and without parents into families where they see in their own experience what God has done for us all in adopting us as sons. I don't think there should be a burden on anyone's conscience that you must go out and adopt a child. But, but if you've never thought about that, I, I would encourage you to think about that. And, and as you encounter parents who have no genetic children but only adoptive children, don't look at that as something lesser. It's real. It's real. God changes our status when we're adopted. And there's a genuine change as, as we adopt children and bring them into our families. So I, I don't think that's Paul's point here in using this metaphor. But I think Christians have picked up on this. Either because of Joseph's role in, in acting as an adopted father for Jesus or, or because of this language, whatever the case, I think we would be well informed to be thinking that way as well. So we've been chosen predestined as sons, to be adopted as sons. And as I've discussed, where the Romans would try to make sure that this guy who was being adopted was worthy of it and and then given responsibility, God has just chosen us and then he is going to work to transform us to live worthy of our calling. I, I think that's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we should strive to live worthy of our calling, For well, our calling is as an heir of God, and that calling should be transformative to us. So it is true that God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he makes us one of his own, but it's also true that God is going to do something to us so that we are worthy of that calling that we've received. In in Ephesians 5, we'll we'll hear about this in terms of Jesus sanctifying us and purifying us. But here, we're introduced to it in verse 4, where he writes that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. So as we see ourselves as the adopted children of God— there should be a draw for us to move towards him in holiness and blamelessness and love. And that is not legalism. That that is righteousness. And that is living out our identity. And so there is a way to be legalistic about it. You can say, as I become more holy, God loves me more. and, And now I'm genuinely worthy. Well, there is nothing you can do to be worthy of your calling but there is a way that you can live that is living out a worthiness or what it looks like to be worthy. It's a demonstration of the worthiness that is in Jesus Christ. That's why there's language in Ephesians of imitating God and, and being like Christ. It's not because living worthy of our calling makes us somehow be in a position where we've earned it. No, it's just saying we're reflecting the only one who truly is worthy. So we can say live worthy of your calling or you're living in an unworthy way, but that's only in terms of the way that we mirror Jesus, the truly worthy one. So to those who might hear the doctrine of election and think, if I'm predestined, there's no more responsibility placed on me. I just want to suggest that you're wrong. In in that by being welcomed into God's family, there is a family member role that you take on as the heir and that should be transformative to you. So when you're adopted off the streets, you don't get to keep living like you're on the streets. You live in the glorious grace of God, which is that you would be presented before him holy and blameless in love. The result of this choosing of this calling then is that we should be praising God. Okay, so, so we've reflected on what God has done in choosing, what that does to us, but, but what's the ongoing response we should have? Well, our ongoing response should be to bless God and to praise his glorious grace. So he starts it out in verse 3, "'Bless is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Well, that word blessed is God, it just means praised is God or bless the Lord for this. Praise him. Praise his glorious grace. That's the mode of being that we ought to have as we respond to this information of God's electing grace to us. It should not be a visceral reaction. It should not be confusion or or troublesome, troubling, being troubled about our will and God's will. It should be praising God's glorious grace. Once again, I, I know that this doctrine can be troubling to some because it's talked about sometimes in systematic theology as if it happened in a laboratory or something like that. But I want to give you one thing to hold on to if that's you. And it may not be you, but if that's you, where, where this doctrine of election is troubling, I want to give you one thing to hold on to that, that might carry you through t- to praise God for it. And that is, depending on the translation that you're reading. If if you're reading the Christian Standard Bible, verse four says this, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. If if you're reading the English Standard Version or a number of others, it, it says something like, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him in love having been predestined Having or he predestined us, sorry, not looking at the right translation. He pre- in love, he predestined us. So, if you're reading English Standard Version, he wants us to be before him, holy and blameless. Period. In love, he predestined us. Okay, so the, the trouble, the problem here is that in the Greek text. The, the original Greek, maybe you don't know this, the, there was no like punctuation given and no spaces even. And so if you know what was intended here, a breath in the right place would indicate what's being emphasized. Are we, are we supposed to be presented before God holy and blameless in love, or are we in love predestined? Well, if you breathe in the right place, then it makes sense. We just weren't there to hear whoever read this breathe, And so sometimes we translate it within love going to holy and blameless, other times with love being connected to predestined. Well, I, I, I don't think it it's either or. I think it's a both and because in the placement of the text, in love is the bridge between being presented holy and blameless and being predestined. And Paul over and over will have these kind of like hooks. You know where like hooks come together? I don't know what that's called, but like on a train or something where they hook in and it's, it's both. Well, I think that's what's going on here. We are presented holy and blameless in love, but in love he predestined us. So that choosing and predestining was an act of love. It's not an act of prejudice or a negative thing at all, but it's closed in the love of God for you. And if we can hold on to the electing reality of God's grace, knowing that it's in love, what else can we do but praise God? And, and I think that's where we need to be. So in, in conclusion, they say don't say that because people stop listening, but yeah. in, in conclusion, because we've been predestined as sons, we are heirs of God who have a new responsibility and calling, and, and we should live then to the praise of his grace.